Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books and Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Susan Liebel at St. Joseph's University, and today I'm joined by Dr. Gordon H. Chang to discuss his book, Ghosts of Gold Mountain, the epic story of the Chinese who built the Transcontinental Railroad, published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt Press in 2019. The book won the Asian Pacific American Librarians Award for Literature and the Chinese American Librarians Association Best Book Award. Ghosts of Gold Mountain recovers the history of how thousands of immigrants from southern China came to work on the Transcontinental Railroad, at the time an essential American infrastructure and the second largest construction project in the world after the Suez Canal. Despite their contribution, Chinese workers were marginalized politically, socially, and economically in their time and in subsequent treatments of American labor and immigration history. In Ghosts of Gold Mountain, Dr. Chang seeks to present a full account of the thousands who worked on the transcontinental history and their story as lived experience. In his words, quote, the Chinese are presented not as voiceless objects of interest or docile human tools, but as vital, living, and feeling human beings who made history, unquote. American history, particularly our understanding of labor, immigration, and racism, is incomplete without focusing on the railroad Chinese. Dr. Gordon H. Chang is the Olive H. Palmer Professor in Humanities and Professor of History at Stanford University. He serves as Senior Associate Vice Provost for Undergraduate Education and co-directs the Chinese Railroad Workers in North America Project at Stanford. Among his scholarly works, Dr. Chang is the author of Fateful Ties, A History of America's Preoccupation with China from Harvard University Press 2015, and co-editor of The Chinese and the Iron Road, Building the Transcontinental Railroad from Stanford University Press 2019 with Shelley Fisher Fishkin. Dr. Chang writes at the intersection of U.S. diplomacy, America-China relations, the Chinese diaspora, Asian American history and global history, and it is my privilege to welcome him to the New Books Web Network. Welcome, Gordon. Thank you, Susan. It's a delight to, to be here. I'm I'm uh, lovely occasions to be able to talk about my passion, which is the uh, this book and the work I did to uh, produce it. Well, um, I loved this book. Uh, it, it's one of the best books I've read in years. And I'll say oh more about what that later. But I Thank read a you. lot of books, and uh, this was remarkable in all ways. Um, okay, since the history of the Chinese contribution to the building of the railroad has been obscured, let's start with some context for our listeners. The book opens with a photograph that some may have seen, taken by Andrew J. Russell in 1869. It's called East and West Shaking Hands. And it shows two steam engines representing the Central Pacific Railroad Company that started in Sacramento, California, and the Central uh, and the Union Pacific that had started in Omaha, Nebraska. And they meet at Promontory Summit in Utah. So can you tell us a little bit about what's shown in the photo and also what is missing? Well, I love to talk about the photo. And, and I do uh, begin the book with it because it serves as something literal and also figurative. And as a historian, uh, historians like to, to, to play with those, those, those uh, dimensions. Uh, it's, it's literal in the sense that that photo showing two great massive train engines meeting face to face or head to head and engineers reaching across and shaking each other's hands and toasting and celebrating and other uh, uh, folks uh, gathered almost all, I think they're all men, uh, gathered in front of the engines and um, enjoying the celebratory moment. Um, uh, and it is perhaps the most famous, I think, photo from the 19th, certainly the mid or mid part of the 19th century. Uh, maybe there's a photo of Abraham Lincoln that's more well known, but this one I think is very well known to most of the American public. 
Um, and it is presented uh, as uh, often presented. Uh, and Russell did not mean it when he took the photo, but it has come to, to symbolize the, 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 the importance of the Transcontinental Railroad is that it connected the east, the U.S. east and the far west, uh, which had been divided by geography. And it also symbolized the reunion of the country uh, with the Civil War uh, recently passed. Uh, so it is a celebratory, it is presented as a celebratory moment of grand union, of manifest destiny, and of uh, and great uh, engineering and construction accomplishment. Uh, and it is often presented as, as I said, a nationalist moment. This is a great American moment. But left out of this photo, uh, uh, as many Chinese Americans believe, is any reference to, to, of Chinese workers who uh, uh, comprise 90% of the construction workforce on the western portion of the railroad line, which was on the Central Pacific line. And, and they appear to be nowhere in the photo. Um, so some Chinese Americans and other critics uh, say this is a misleading photo. They were deliberately excluded from the photo. This was a literal erasure from the uh, celebratory moment. Uh, I, I understand the sentiment, but, uh, there's no evidence that they were physically or deliberately excluded from the photo. In fact, uh, other photos taken by A.J. Russell that day showed Chinese in, in great, uh, uh, presence and including a very, another photo, which should be more important, which is called Chinese laying the last rail, which really shows Chinese railroad crews laying the uh, last rail before the ce- celebra- celebration presided by Leland Stanford. So um, um, it is it is taken as as an example of 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 a, uh, it is an example of of, of grievance of for, for why there should be grievance of, about how the history has been told. Now, the, the metaphoric portion of the photo is that uh, th- though it is believed that there was no Chinese in the photo, in fact, uh, we discovered there is. Um, my wife actually, I think, discovered it. She, we were up at the California State Railroad Museum, and they had this large enlargement of, uh, of it. And, and we could see a lot of detail, which was obscured or invisible to those in just looking at it online or on a book. And it right, it right in the front of the photo, there's a, there's a figure who's quite fuzzy because apparently he's moving. And it has his back to the photographer. All the other people are looking at the camera and they can see their faces. But this fellow, you can't see his face. But from his body type and his clothes, I'm positive that this was a Chinese railroad worker, even for part of the crew. So uh, he's, his, his clothes are tattered. He's stooped over, he's moving, he's working. Uh, so, he, so in fact, the Chinese are in the frame. They are in the picture, but we've never seen him before. You know, so I started I, off the book with that. You know, as I read the book, I felt like the photographers, Alfred Hart, Carlton Watkins, Charles Savage, uh, and the illustrator, also Joseph Becker, I thought they were characters in the book or like forms of research assistants because they had either on purpose focused their lens on the Chinese workers or inadvertently captured the, the, the environment in which um, what, you, what you term the railroad Chinese uh, were doing. And, and you mentioned the magnifying glass. You don't mention, I don't think you mentioned the story about the, the giant, the enlargement, but you, know, you, you mentioned a magnifying glass and you'd really draw the reader to notice these tiny little details that would normally have escaped at least me or the, the blurry image that turns out to be another character. Where were these photographs? You know, are, are, are they widely, excuse my ignorance, it's not my field, but are they widely known to scholars? And, and when did you first encounter them? Most of these photos are available right online. And many had been viewed. They were not rare photos, by and large. Um, Alfred Hart took photos for the Central Pacific, and um, uh, other photos were taken by other photographers, by, by, by hired by other railroad lines. Um, so they were company photographers. They were not ethnographers. They were not scholars. They were not art photo photographers. Uh, 
per se. Um, but uh, they've always been, many of these photos have been in the public realm, or at least available, even online. And that's how we got to know some of them. Alfred Hart photos, you can go to the Stanford University Library, you can see the digital digitization of them. Um, and the Russell photos are at the Oakland Museum. Um, so they're not that rare or obscure. But we just didn't look at them and say, we historians, we scholars, we're interested folks, never really looked at them with that much care or with the ability. And I do mention digitization, which I, I want to, to, to salute, that uh, the digital world has enabled us uh, historians and researchers to do things that were very difficult, if not impossible, for us to do before. Now, uh, I make use of the photos um, because... One of the great challenges to writing the book is that there is a dearth of sources. And as you said in your very nice introduction, I've tried to present the history of the Chinese rail workers from their point of view, from their lived experience, how they lived working on the transcontinental railroad line, not as just objects to, that other historians have, have written about as the railroad. Big railroad uh, construction is one of the great popular topics in American publishing. Uh, but it's very difficult to talk about the uh, everyday uh, uh, experience of living people uh, from their vantage point. Um, we can talk about, and people, many people do, talk about the railroad from the vantage point of Leland Stanford or the Union Pacific people, the other robber barons, and, and so forth, because they left voluminous records and diaries and correspondence. And so you can reconstruct their lives almost, you know, day by day, hour by hour, but not so workers, Chinese workers, Irish workers, Mormon workers, whoever, you know, the, the workers, unfortunately, in our, our history are often given short shrift. People just don't think of their, they're just sort of there. They've done the work. I loved how you were able to make Stanford into their boss. So it, it's as if, Everything in the book is refocused from their point of view. He just becomes their employer rather than him and his diaries and his uh, uh, motivations becoming central. Though, though you tell his story because it's important to how they work. Uh, I, I really liked that. Uh, I appreciated the amount of work that it took to shift the, our gaze so that we got into their shoes um, before we get to your evidence, which is amazing where you're pulling all of this from, how did you get interested in the subject of the transcontinental uh, railroad and and the work of the of the Chinese? And, and is it um, awkward doing that at Stanford where it's <laughs> the money from the railroad owner that exploited the workers? Well, that irony of it certainly didn't... Uh, <laughs> Miss me, uh, it, you know, from the very beginning, we knew this could be a sensitive, top, sensitive topic. But when we started our project, we, uh, we needed money because it was, we had ambitions to make it a big project. And we went to the administration and they very generously and very quickly gave us great seed money. So I very much appreciate them. And they understood the value and the importance of, of history and, and, and every effort to try to recover it as best we can. Now, as, as to how I got to the topic, uh, I'm, I'm fourth generation Californian or U.S. Um, and uh, my ancestors, uh, I can first detect, uh, determine, came to the United States, uh, landed in the United States in the early 1850s. So uh, I've always appreciated my long, uh, uh, my own family history as part of California and the history of the West. And and even though I've always been historically inclined, I've have been had little opportunity to do very much sustained research, uh, certainly on the Chinese railroad workers, more recent history I've done. But um, finally, uh, I have been able to do that. And um, so it was a topic that had long been um, in my mind. When I first started graduate school in the 70s uh, at Stanford, I came to get a PhD in, in Chinese history then. One of the first things I did was to go to the library and then went up to the special collection. So they were the Leland Stanford papers. I want to find out about Chinese railroad workers because they had always been on my mind, but never knew very much about it. And they said, well, we don't have very much. And they didn't. So to this wow. day, you can't find very much about the railroad workers from Leland Stanford's papers. The vast 
portion of which were destroyed by Jane Stanford, his wife, after he passed away because there was presumably too much sensitive stuff. Oh my and goodness. so the oh. personal archive is actually quite small, although there is still that much remains and, and other materials. So um, this was, this was a, 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 a pot, personal project of mine for many years. But then there was the immediate timing. 2015, we started the project in 2012. 2015 was the 150th anniversary of the introduction of large numbers of Chinese onto the line. So we thought, oh, three years, four years, we'll, you know, we can come up with something in 2015 for that, uh, those events that were planned. And then <laughs> that went by very fast. But then 2019 was looming, and that was really a great m uh, moment to uh, recognize. And that was the 150th anniversary of Promontory Summit, the uh, moment that you mentioned in May 10th, 1869, when that epic photo uh, is taken where the two lines come together and the ceremony completing, uh, 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 official, officially ending construction occurs. So we did that work uh, in, in that time. So you've been, you've been a scholar for a long time, but this is your first trade book. And I'm wondering what led you to write for a different audience. Uh, you know, you'd already, or you simultaneously published the, uh, the academic version, the Chinese railroad workers, uh, the, um, blanking on Chinese the in the iron road, sorry, Chinese in the iron road. Thank you very much. So why trade? What were you hoping to accomplish? Um, by writing to that wider audience? The, the project had always been very collaborative uh, because we knew from the beginning that this challenge of re recovering their history was daunting. And we needed the resources and uh, intelligence of many different people. Not, um, because we, because of the, we, I, I've been thinking about this for years, as I said, and I knew there was just a dearth of re research material. So we'd had to bring up, think about new uh, methodologies of historical recovery, uh, possibly locating new resources. We thought about uh, the importance of uh, locating, possibly locating material in China. We thought about other disciplines such as cultural studies, uh, anthropology, and archaeology. Uh, visual studies, and all, and so it was a marvelous experience to collaborate with scholars from many different fields. Some right at Stanford, uh, religious studies, uh, archaeology, uh, and uh, 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 cultural studies, literary studies, but uh, all across the United States and in Canada and uh, uh, in Europe and in Asia, in Taiwan and mainland China and in Hong Kong. And we were able to pull together uh, what we did because we all worked together and we all had little bits and pieces of the, of the puzzle. So being comfortable with academic publishing, I knew, well, what we could do is, is people could then take a portion of it and write on, about it from their exper expertise and, and the discoveries that they found and which they did. And uh, we, we put together the, the big volume in Chinese on the Iron Road, which is 2021 different essays by scholars who writing largely to other scholars or those who are, are somewhat familiar with the topic. But uh, as this volume was coming together, it was pretty clear to me and to others in the project that there was no one really putting the whole story together, that we had 21 and more. We had many more essays than 21, and, and so others of which have been published online in our website. Uh, great, great work and continues to be done. Um, but uh, we needed someone to pull it all together and there really wasn't anybody else. And so I said, I'll do it. And it had not been on my research agenda. And, but it was a great, wonderful experience to uh, work uh, with this material, research material that people had put together and to put out something deliberately for an audience beyond specialists. And so that's how Ghosts of Golden Mountain comes about. And I decided, you know, it should be directed towards a, a, a broad audience. It's beautifully written. It's a page turner. It, it, I mean, I read a lot of serious nonfiction, you know, in addition to reading all the political science and history and philosophy that I have to read for my scholarship. And, and sometimes books like this 
are in, a bit insulting to the reader. They repeat things over and over again. They, they pull people along uh, a, a very clear path that I find tedious. Uh, what I thought was very interesting about this book was how you know, you're dealing with a lot of places, a lot of names, a, a lot of equipment that is not familiar to the reader. It all becomes very familiar. But you set things up so that we notice a problem and then a few page later, later, you solve it for us. And I really appreciated that part of it. I, I think this is a very serious book, but also a clearly written, lively, colorful book in which you sort of feel like you can, you can see it. Um, it it's, it's, it's really beautifully written. I oh, I appreciate your observation comments so much, Susan. That's, that's very touching. And, you know, I've heard similar comments from many others. And it's been very rewarding. And, and it's, these comments have made it all worthwhile. Because, uh, you know, writing for an academic audience is one thing. I mean, trying to reach others, uh, whatever background, is, is a different challenge. And then third, well, the other challenge, too, is I'm a professional historian. I've been academic most of my professional life. And so I write in a certain way or I think in a certain present it. And I had to sort of shift. Uh, but and I also had certain, certain standards and requirements. So I, I didn't want to do, quote, unquote, makeup history or, you know, I didn't write fiction as much as I respect fiction. But the book, I hope, is, is really well-grounded. And everything that, that's in there is something I've tried to document. So that, that goes back to the challenge again of how, how to write about something like this when we have uh, a thin uh, a, a resource base, particularly from the Chinese themselves. As I said in the book, we still to this day do not have a single document from a Chinese railroad worker. Not a memoir, oral history, uh, diary, letter, scrap of, uh, of correspondence, not a single bit of information in their own hand or word. Well, you get around it by using every possible form of evidence. You have business records, you have archaeological remains from the work sites, you have letters, genealogical documents, press reports, poetry, folk songs. Um, you trace down the diets of what would have been brought to the workers or what they themselves would have taken from the environments that they were in to try to replace that direct first person, you know, uh, gold standard, the thing that all historians hope to find. And I think you do a good job of capturing you know, what they saw and, and where they were. And you really do center the story on them. And you say that you're trying to see the world from their point of view. And I, I think that gets accomplished. Uh, can you just share a tiny bit about that research? I know you've already mentioned a little bit about how much coordination it, it involved. Uh, I don't know, some aha moments in an archive or, 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 or a, a discipline that you didn't expect would play such a, a role in in, in excavating this history? One of the first things that I had to do when I began writing was to reposition myself. I mean, all writers, we write from a position. There's positionality. And academic historians usually adopt a, you know, sort of a dis dispassionate, detached, uh, elevated position. And I could not do that because it just would not do justice to the objective that I wanted to achieve. So I had to really think, and I went, I would go to bed literally all night to try to place myself in the worker's position, what they were doing at night, what they were doing at day, what they're doing the time off. And, and, and that, that juxtaposition, that shift was so fundamental and so important. And therefore I would look at all the evidence again, not to, because almost all the evidence, like a photograph, it takes the photos of the Chinese as objects. They're standing there. They're, you can see them far distant. But what if I turn that around and I put myself in their position, looking at the photographer? What would they see? What was their environment? So the photographers were not interested in capturing their lived experience. 
but all around them, they captured the consequences of their work, the results of their labor. You can see the cut trees, you can see the roadbed, you can see all the soil and rock that's been excavated and dumped and constructed. And therefore, as soon as one does that, then one thinks, well, people did that. It just didn't happen. A bulldozer didn't happen. It was rock, uh, picks and shovels and carts, human muscle that did all this. And then I would see a photo of a labor camp. And uh, I use digital technology. And if you look at online, you can just see basically the tents. But if you can enlarge it through digitization, you can see people walking around. You can see the Chinese workers walking around. You can see their laundry. You can see them sitting around eating. And that just humanized them. Uh, so then that led to all sorts of, of questions about how they did it. You know, what were they wearing? What were they eating? How did they get their food? When um, uh, And then I would read uh, evidence such as one of the engineers, uh, a white engineer who, who was uh, head of the, the mining operations, or the part of the construction effort, went, wrote a very beautiful uh, letter or memoir about his experience. <clears throat> One night walking in the work, went out at night in the high Sierra, snow had fallen. It was quiet when he went out and it was just a gorgeous, he wrote very beautifully. And he talked about walking under the trees with the heavy, with the snow. And, uh, they, they lay, they, they hung, uh, were weighed down and he looked up in the sky and he could see the scar stars in the sky. And then he could hear and see the tunnels, the entries to the tunnels lit up with the lanterns for the, Ch the Chinese railroad workers. And he could hear the boom, boom, boom. And he had, was almost poetic. And he said that those were stars that had come down into the mountains. That was marvelous. So. I really appreciated you know, that observation. And the, but then again, twist that around. Those were workers here in the darkness of night, in these dark caverns with lanterns uh, and working with black powder to blow, to blow cracks into the, make cracks into the, to the granite. So uh, that, that's, that's the approach that I, I, I took. Well, whatever you discomfort you were feeling lying awake trying to figure this out, you actually pass on to the reader because that that discomfort with their environment was something I felt I was experiencing. Obviously, I've not been a 19th century railroad worker, but I, I felt cold as you were describing the, the amount of snow and how they were moving it and how are they trying to keep it off of the, of the railroad, let alone themselves. Uh, the description of the food preparation is—it's—it's—it's it's, it's remarkably um, visual, even though it's a book. This this needs to be a documentary. It'd be really great, great documentary. Um, and and I really liked how the book sort of sets the record straight on these different levels. So on the micro level, you're trying to to settle whether or not Chinese workers were lowered down this mountain face in a basket. You know, is that true? Is that a myth or is, did that really happen? But also on the macro level, because you're also trying to show that the Chinese workers as, as founding people, you know, people who made America figuratively and literally and had their contribution erased. And I thought the way you used what you had, um, and, and you did have, um, uh, I think his name is Hui Kin. The, 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 he's not a railroad worker, but he's writing at the same time. I thought the way you used his eyes getting off the boat, getting into San Francisco was, was really a terrific way of, of giving us a Chinese voice, even though we didn't have a Chinese railroad worker's voice. Um, Let's just talk a little bit about their names and why we don't have their names. Um, you, you, and and where these workers came from. So, uh, where did they come from, and and why did they come from Southern China to the American West? Well, you you mentioned the baskets. I, <laughs> I was oh, sure. to you talking. Uh, so yeah, maybe maybe we should leave, not uh, not leave them hanging. 
<laughs> but you're, you're, this is a, a moment which is very controversial. And, and I do address historical controversies in the book. The book is, is narrative, but I, I do embed in the narrative uh, my effort to address these, these serious controversies. And one of them was whether uh, or not uh, Chinese workers uh, got into woven wicker baskets, a wicker or some woven with something, and uh, brought over the side of a, a, a cliff and and lowered down to work on the surf, rock face of this place, which is called still called uh, Cape Horn because it's a large promontory that blocks the route of the railroad line. And the only way to, it had to get around it, but it was so steep and uh, then dangerous that you, you wouldn't couldn't construct the railroad line as one did on a more level surface. So the, the uh, story went that they, they would use these baskets. And it, it's, you could just try to imagine that there were these, uh, these men in a basket or two men in a basket uh, hung down the side of a mountain and using chisels and banging away and trying to make holes for the black powder or, or, or whatever to, to, begin, to, to make a foothold for the, 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 the line. And this is this uh, became quite a um, the issue of contention, um, and there were those who who for years had insisted that this had happened, and I wanted to believe it happened because it was such a dramatic and, and uh, powerful uh, story. But just as as uh, as emotionally or strongly, uh, there were those who emerged as uh, opponents. Of this. And I'd have to say, I did not like their interpretation at first because I think they were also prejudiced. They said this was just sort of victim history. There was no evidence for this. And, but they had quite, they made an argument and they, they, they excavated the material and said that, look, this doesn't sustain this account. So I was challenged. So what am I going to do? So I, I went in thinking yes. Then I just said, well, maybe no. And then I really did the work. And, and from what we were able to put together, I became convinced that, it, yes, it did happen. Uh, and the evidence is, is compelling and I think, I think completely credible. Uh, it may not have happened at a particular location, but uh, the, the, the basket story is real. And that's a section of the book where I felt like you respected the reader. You, you laid out that controversy you you made me feel like oh, oh maybe this isn't actually true this this was this was something families told about and it was heroic and then you use the newspaper reports you use these eyewitness reports of of the tourists who take the train out and and speak of the the men in the baskets and so it's it's another one of those examples of really respecting the reader's ability to deal with historical controversy and understand in a sense you make the craft very transparent in that moment in the book of how history is done one group says x another group says y how would we get at it and i i felt i loved that part of the book so um, oh, and the other bit of evidence, I, I, I do use a variety of different methods, and one was to, to, to respect engineering, uh, physical engineering. And, and that was one of the, the, the arguments used by their opponents of the view that said, look, there's the, the, the uh, grade, the, per, the percentage of the grade, and the, the type of soil was this or that, and they therefore discounted the possibility or the, the utility of using baskets. But then I went and found other evidence from the time that disputed their contention. So, yes, I, we had to bring in a little bit of, of uh, engineering science into the story. Now, it's an interdisciplinary work for sure. Um, okay, let's see. Uh, okay, why did all of the Chinese uh, come to work on the railroads? What were they hoping to find in the Western United States? And, and what was the motivation of the companies for trying to bring them to California? The, uh, the, the formal project of the, what we would call the Transcontinental Railroad it doesn't begin until 1862. 
uh, after Abraham Lincoln, President Lincoln signs a bill to authorize federal support for this massive effort. Um, and the Central Pacific Railroad, headed by Leland Sanford and others, who became known as the Big Four, all legendary people in California history, uh, but also national history, um, and Collis Huntington and, and you folks out on the East Coast, the, the Huntington name is, might be familiar to those particularly around the New York area. Very, very, became all very, very wealthy, Charles Cocker and, and, uh, and Mark Hopkins and, and Stanford. Um, they started the, the Central Pacific Railroad. They were all wealthy men to begin with, but uh, also had their own prejudices. And when they started the line, they explicitly said that we, they would hire only white workers. Um, and they did not hire Chinese from the beginning. But the, there was a real uh, uh, lack of labor supply in California. It, it, workers couldn't come out from the East Coast easily to, to get to the Central Pacific. It, it took six to eight weeks to go from New York to San Francisco before the Transcontinental Railroad. Uh, through, they had to take a, a, a vessel from New York to Panama, walk across Panama, and then come up on the other side, or go all the way down the tip of South America and come all the way back up, all very, very dangerous uh, sea routes and difficult and disease and, and so forth, or take a, a train out to Nebraska and then get off and basically walk the rest of the way through uh, unsettled territory, un, un, un uh, conquered territory for this native country. And so that took 68 weeks and a lot of people died. Um, so that's why they, the Central Pacific had a labor supply problem. Uh, then finally, in, in late 1864, they just, they were not making the progress. They just didn't have the thousands of workers that they needed. You needed not just 100, it's 200 or 500. You needed 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 5,000, 10,000 workers. Uh, and so finally, uh, they turned to hiring Chinese who had been in the States, such as my ancestors, uh, for you know 15-something years, uh, a number of them. And they had worked in infrastructure, uh, building uh, roads and bridges and vineyards and, and all this. So they, were, they had done heavy work previously. And so they began to introduce some of these workers onto the railroad and work teams. And they worked out so marvelously that uh, they hired more and more. Uh, a side light on the story is that we, we're not sure where or how the idea of hiring Chinese originated. And um, uh, one story, which I think is credible, although we'll never be able to dis definitively answer this, it seemed it might have come from Chinese themselves that... Um, it is said from a descendant uh, of one of the big four who I interviewed, and he said within the family, there, there was the story that the manservant of one of the big four had mentioned to, to the fellow, uh, why not hire Chinese? Because they had, he had heard, you know, he was in the inner, inner sanctum, heard all these problems. Right, right. And so the idea of using Chinese may have come from the Chinese guy himself. So they began to hire a, a handful, then 50, 100, several hundred, and then there was just not enough already. So then they began in 1865 to add to send agents and fly handbills. They actually printed handbills in California and sent them to China to distribute, to recruit right from China. And so a stream of workers begins to come from southern China to California. So the Chinese who worked on the line were both those who had been here in California for some time, and then also who were newcomers who came right over directly from China to work on this project, which had already become mythical in some, in many respects, of this, this railroad line that stretched across the continent. And that's how the number of workers eventually reaches up to uh, it's estimated by the big four themselves, or Leland Stanford, up to 12,000 at any one moment. But because there was turnover, and I think this is an important issue, uh, because they, they, they were able to come and go, or they did come and go. They were not indentured onto the line, um, but they would sometimes leave because the work was too dangerous, hard, and 
they get better pay somewhere else. Uh, so getting these wages from the railroad company or from other uh, other employers was the, the big attraction for these uh, fellows who were, were largely uh, young men, uh, teen, late, teenagers, late teens, uh, into their 20s, prime working age, and they, they'd come over. They were released from their family farms to, to come over and, and labor. Uh, and uh, so overall, there we have to make maybe 20,000 uh, uh, worked for some time on the railroad line up until 1869. And then afterwards, well, this is the other story, part of the story, which is really even less well-known, is that uh, many Chinese continue to work on railroad lines throughout the United States on the, on the transcontinental itself and maintaining and rebuilding portions of it. Uh, but also, be, uh, they, they traveled now on the rail line back to the mid throughout the South, Midwest, Southwest, and built uh, rail lines throughout much of the rest of the United States and Tennessee and Arkansas and Arizona, Massachusetts and Long Island. And, uh, and we learned this again with the paying tribute to the digital world is uh, there are, are enormous research uh, resources online now, and particularly American newspapers regional local newspapers that have been digitized and th those sources were had been available before but historians just didn't have the means and ability and time to go to all these little local archives and libraries to, to search for the small town newspapers but now we can just uh, search for them and found scores hundreds of mentions of chinese railroad workers as they entered these towns, they were clearly spectacles to the local press, and, and they took note of it, and they wrote about them. So this is how we were able to, 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 to you know, compile that part of the story uh, by using even journalism at the time. I have students using Chronicling America, and they, they marvel at what they can find. You know, just because there's now a search tool, it's, it's an amazing resource. When you talk about Stanford and some of the uh, executives, you, you actually sort of say that they had a bit of an of an arc that San, Stanford himself sort of started at the beginning, thinking of the uh, Chinese as uh, quote you know degraded and distinct people, and by the end he has a very very different view of them. Uh, I wonder if you could just say a little bit about about that, about the perception and the the way that. Chinese labor changes the perception of these um, railroad barons. Well, it, to use a term we would use today, uh, the Chinese rail, Chinese pay their dues, and they, by paying their dues, they they were able to advance. Uh, but but to be more specific, you know, Leland Stanford, and I, again, this is where I went in thinking one way and came out thinking another way, as historians should. Even we scholars go. You, go and look at the evidence and make up your mind after looking at the evidence. But we go in with a certain assumption, and that was, uh, mine was, Leland Sanford was a sort of pretty kind of a robber baron, a, a racist dog, because I knew um, about his inaugural address as the uh, first Republican governor of California, uh, and he was, uh, uh, spoke to the California legislature um, in 1861, He'd, he'd been, uh, uh, had attended, I think, uh, Abraham Lincoln's inauguration. Uh, so he was a prominent Republican and, uh, and, and businessman in California, but he was also very prejudiced. And he went, he gave a short address. And the main item on his address was how to keep the Chinese out of California. And he said, you quoted him correctly. And he said that the Chinese would re repel the superior race from populating uh, his, his state. And so he didn't want that. And so he, he called on the legislature to try to find ways to have a local, a state exclusion uh, uh, method. Um, so he, 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 that was very well known. It's been very well publicized. But over time, particularly after the railroad construction, his tone changed remarkably. And, uh, and, and but that, change in tone is not as well known. And uh, I have an essay in the book, Chinese in the Iron Road, where I focus uh, on the Stanford's 
Jane and Leland and their relationship with the Chinese over their long lives and how they've changed, how they were quietly, sometimes quite prejudiced. Uh, he was a politician and spoke to a public press. Uh, and, uh, but other times, very, very close, including, uh, incredibly, uh, sometime in the 1850s, uh, I believe it was, if I recall now, where they were very um, saddened that they hadn't had children. And eventually they did. They had Leland Jr. Who, and, and Leland Jr. was the love of their life. And he died tragically contracting cholera or something in, in Europe. So that's why we have Stanford, Leland Stanford Jr. University, which was named for him. But before he came along, Jane wanted to adopt a Chinese houseboy who was in their employ in Sacramento. And it was incredible. Now, event, that didn't work out in part because... The Chinese boy and his older brother objected. I love that part of the the book. (laughs) The older brother said, "You you can't be adopted because we we're not orphans, right? We We have parents. parents. (laughs) We have parents." (laughs) And there was the racial question and and this, and both of them became quite successful, including and he to his dying day had the had the greatest praise and affection for the for the Stanfords because of how they treated him and supported his business, eventual business efforts and, and, and all this. And he had uh, memorabilia from the family, including engraved uh, items. Um, so the st- so it is, a, it is a, a story of, as all human stories, of change. People do change over time. And Stanford really is an example of that. One of the interesting themes in the book is language. On the one hand, the Chinese are treated uh, as a racialized other, and their some of their treatment is inhumane. There's a remarkable amount of violence in this book. Uh, the workers are paid less. They have to live in different quarters than other workers. They're also superhuman. So they're sort of also described as these sort of remarkably uh, uh, resolved, um, efficient, systematic, disciplined. They're better, neater, cleaner. That's a quote. Faster and cheaper than white workers. You know, they're precise. Uh, and and one of the problems I actually had reading the book was how to sort through the extent to which some of this was overcoming prejudice. In, in their recognition of the talents and the organization of the Chinese workers. And on the other hand, a kind of language that is suspect because it's the result of racist expectations, either that they won't be these things or also that they're some sort of machines. Uh, and I wondered how, how you dealt with that language as you were working through the, the, uh, the writing of the book. Well, that's a great point. The language is important. And the description of the Chinese in those terms is repeated uh, uh, in, in, a number of di- in a number of different articles and essays. And observers make the same thing. They remark on the, if you will, the work ethic and the efficiency uh, in the economy of the workers. Uh, and Leland Stanford and others talked about this too. So come the, this, this sort of picture is, is shared by many, many different observers. Uh, and um, they, don't, they don't get drunk. They don't go carouse. Uh, and there was always comparisons, as the capitalists would call them at the time, made comparisons to different worker, worker group communities, Irish or African-Americans or Mormons or Mexicans and Chinese, and they would make generalizations about their work styles and communities and habits of this. And then pit them against each other too, which which we can talk about uh, how they deliberately hired them to do certain tasks or during strikes against to, to break strikes. Um, but I think that the, the this characterization of the Chinese is is what uh, it resulted in really sort of a a, 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 a elevation of the Chinese. They 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 had received mixed mixed uh, uh, reception from the beginning when their entry in the countries. Some had despised them. They, they hated them because they were for racial reasons and cultural reasons. And But then others, uh, quite from the beginning, also commented and had the same kind of 
uh, attributes uh, given to them, uh, gave to them. And uh, so uh, part of it, I think, is that the Chinese w- w- did bring over a work ethic. Um, and this is something I do a little bit on in, in China, how they did work, who they were. Uh, what their expectations were, and they, they, they were also very disciplined. They worked in gangs, and they also had labor contractors overseeing them. They were largely trying to raise money to send back to their families. So there were incentives for them to be uh, work hard, and, and the wages they got, even though they were significantly lower than white workers, were enormously higher than what they could get in China. So they, were, they would accept this wage differential. Um, the other, other characteristic that was put upon them was that, the, and the word was used often, was docile. That even they did all these things, and they, they were cheaper, and they were docile. They, they, docile meaning that they really didn't protest much, or they didn't, didn't, didn't uh, resist uh, uh, the, the uh, supervisors and this. Now, it, it, I don't think that meant that docile in the sense they were just sort of passive because obviously they were working very hard, but they, they weren't resistant as some of the other working groups were uh, with, with, uh, with, with resisting uh, the supervision and, ta- and tasks. Uh, now, interestingly, uh, you raise this up because I was on a conversation with an academic group, uh, a, a university group, mainly, mainly students, but also some faculty. And one of the faculty members raised the same sort of the same observation you just did, and he said, you know, really reminded him of our contemporary some of our contemporary characterization of Asian Americans or Chinese Americans work so efficiently. You can't compete against them. They work so hard. They they uh, and they also don't pro. They're sort of a model. And I think that you can find these words in the newspapers and so forth of the time that are eerily present, uh, speak to the present. So, yes, there are certain community characteristics, but also observations. Uh, We can talk about what this history means for the present moment. And part of it, I think it does open a, a way of thinking about how at least the Chinese community has been racialized and uh, characterized over time. And there is a persistent view of that the Chinese are both, as I said, uh, offensive and inoffensive. They're often uh, they're in, they're offensive because COVID and, and they were different. They weren't Christian and all that, so they're offensive. But they're inoffensive too because they they were docile. They didn't fight back, which was not true because, as I talk about in the book, they were, they went on strikes. They did resist uh, their super exploitation. Uh, but today, there's the same thing. I think there's so much of this anti-Asian violence I see is is coming from this same sense of Asians are offensive, but they're also inoffensive, and therefore you can pick on them. You can you can just assault them right on the street, as Chinese had been in California in the eighteen. 18- 60s and 1870s. Um, and I, w- and I want to talk about uh, this notion of what is the connection between this book and our present. The docility part, as I was reading it, and you make this point, so I, I'm not making it, I'm just pulling it out of the book, is also deeply gendered because this association of whether or not uh, the Chinese are manly comes into play uh, th- throughout the book. And the and sometimes it was, it seemed to me to be, on the one hand, that the Chinese are the perfect Americans. They're hardworking, they pull up their bootstraps, and they are willing to sweat and blow things up and, and do all of the sort of, uh, you know, uh, conquering of nature. But on the other hand, they are deprived of a certain notion of masculinity that is normally accorded to the male worker uh, in the United States. And I, I saw you playing with that as well in the book. Well, I saw that uh, discussion played out at the time, that uh, observers uh, played with that, is that the, you're right in how you, you, you uh, repeat the, these words. 
And but I think at the time it, it sort of was, it was a challenge to observers so that the Chinese were so different. Uh, they they could be model citizens, and there were newspaper articles that were quite celebratory, particularly after 1869. So these were the, these were the coming. This was the coming man. Was the title of this series repeatedly the coming man? And I just said. That's such an interesting language. Why do he use this in the title, The Coming Man? And it would talk of the articles would talk about them in more sort of masculine ways, as a, but others would talk of it in more feminized ways. Um, and, and some of the articles uh, didn't acknowledge that they were very different because they didn't bring their women folk over, or at least in very large numbers, and were not st- establishing permanent family communities, which was a problem. But some of them, shockingly, even said, well, they'll just intermarry. Intermarry with whites, with blacks, with natives, or, you know, some of them. And they were, they were envisioned as becoming a permanent part of the American family. It was, it was quite striking to read these. That was not part of the usual narrative that we hear about with the 1882 exclusion actually we can talk about. But, uh, but this, is, this is, I said, there was this moment in the 1870s which corresponded with the era of reconstruction. So I put in a national context of an openness about race and, and connection that uh, lived for a while and then closed up. At the end of the introduction, you say that this is a story of ghosts uh, past, but also in the present and ghosts that resonate with the living. And, you know, you mentioned uh, the, the present and you know, we see this drastic increase in violence against Asian Americans. We have the recent mass shooting in Atlanta in which six of the eight victims were Asian women. And and in the conversation that we've been having, we're focusing on this long and complex history of discrimination, but particularly about the Chinese Exclusion Acts starting in 1882 and the Page Act uh, earlier in 1875, I think, that, that were aimed at denying Chinese in America citizenship and and you uh, and you do an amazing job in the book of sort of placing the railroad history and and drawing connections between the success of the Chinese in building the railroad and the Chinese exclusion acts uh, that were to follow. So as you're looking at today, obviously you didn't you you wrote this book was went to press well before um, the shootings in Atlanta and maybe even some part of the last uh, years of our politics, given how long it often takes things to get to press. Like how how do you see the connection between this history and our our present and understanding uh, the the role of uh, the Chinese in America today or more widely Asian Americans? Well, I, I think there are many connections that we can make uh, between the past and the present. The one I would make here is related to what we began the conversation on, and that was the photo of the erasure of, uh, of the seemingly the erasure of Chinese from the photo from the historical past. And, and what, what is significant about that is, well, it's, it's wrong, but it also does uh, tremendous damage to everything that comes afterwards. And that is to say, it misinterprets, it mispresents the past and who we are. So with what we hear in the contemporary violence against Asian Americans is so often is the slur, and we've all, all Asian Americans have heard this, I heard this, like, you know, go back to where you came from, or where are you really from? They say, well, I'm from California. No, where are you really? This kind of stuff. And so you, Asian Americans, no matter how long one is here and how long the communities are here, they're, they're sort of taken by some sectors of society as just alien, as eternally foreign. Now, that's ignorance, it's prejudice, uh, and, but it's also rooted in the, uh, uh, in the ignorance of the past. That is, this history of the railroad workers building one of the epic moments, uh, 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 projects of American history that transformed the United States, was the res- result of alien workers, foreign workers, Chinese workers. 
So they were an integral part of making America modern. But without that appreciation, or at least acknowledgement, then um, they will be seen as somehow uh, not there, uh, not uh, not contributing, uh, somehow not part of the past, and therefore not shouldn't be not should be part, not part of the present or the future. No, the sort of uh, permanent othering of the the Chinese. I I can I the only parallel I can really think of it of is is. Latinx uh, Americans who trace their ancestry to the 17th century or earlier, and yet they are permanently viewed as somehow, where are you from, as, as opposed to being accepted as, as part of the founding peoples of um, the United States. Um, I loved this book, and I could just keep asking you question after question, but Tell me if there's something I haven't asked you about that you really want to leave people with and will encourage everybody else to read the book. Well, thank you, Susan. A, a great conversation uh, we've had here, and I appreciate your time. I'll leave you just with a, 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 there's so many anecdotes which are telling. So why the title of the book? Why Ghosts of Gold Mountain? So, again, I use it, the term as ghosts in different ways. Uh, somewhat literally in the sense of the time that the Chinese railroad workers really deeply believed in ghosts. I mean, many, many, we still, many of us believe obviously in spirits or souls and ghosts today, but they really, their whole existence was structured around recognition of the past, of their past descendants. And one of the tragedies for a Chinese at that time was to die in a foreign land and not be able to receive a proper burial and have the remains returned to the ancestral home uh, where they would be there for these descendants to give their obeisance to and, and respect through, through, through eternity. But Chinese, when they died here, and, and hundreds of thousands died here, and many of them never were recovered because of explosions or landslides and all that, and so the story went also that they became ghosts. They became hungry ghosts. Um, and they populated the California gold country and mountain country, it was said. And I remember growing up hearing stories said that if you go in different parts of the Sierra, at certain times of the night and seasons, you could hear the wailing of these Chinese ghosts. Are very eerie, you know, because they never, they're, they're still, still, uh, not, not, they're still wandering and they're still suffering in this netherworld. Now, in May 18, 2019, I went out to Promontory Summit, Utah. This was after the book is published. And there was a great, great deal of celebration and commemoration of the, uh, the 150th there. And there was a journalist who spoke to a, a young girl, cowgirl, blonde cowgirl local, and talked about the railroad in different ways. And they said, oh, by the way, any, any comment about the Chinese who worked uh, around here? And she was local. And she said, yeah, you know, we know that when we go out to the plains up here in Utah, at certain times of the seasons and at night, we hear the wailing of Chinese ghosts. And I heard that story, and I, I, I was speechless. almost fell over. It was said almost in the same way. So ghosts as a, could be real. Um, I love the way the ghosts appear throughout the book in different ways, and I won't spoil any of that for readers. Um, Gordon, what's your next project? What are you working on now? Well, I'm thinking about a, a, a project, resuming a project that is long stalled uh, about, uh, about violence, and it speaks to the current moment, about uh, racial violence post-Pearl Harbor. What happened after December 7th against Asians, or people looked like the enemy, but were not, the, uh, just, uh, and, but, uh, but uh, uh, what happened in that? So we sort of know there was a lot going on, but we, neither one. I've already done a lot of the research to look at the, the terrible incidents that happened, which has just been sort of ignored or covered up. But again, it's part of our need to to uh, confront these these episodes in the past.
well, thank you so much for coming on New Books uh, to discuss Ghost of Gold Mountain, the epic story of the Chinese who built the Transcontinental Railroad. It's available from Houghton, Mifl- Houghton Mifflin Harcourt Press 2020. Uh, uh, Gordon, do you have a, a favorite bookstore in your neighborhood that you would like to shout out for people to, to go buy the uh, book there? Sure. Well, the, 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 the classic story here, store here is Kepler's in Menlo Park. Okay. All right. Thank so you. find your Kepler's. Buy it from uh, a brick and mortar. Uh, and um, thank you all so much for listening. And thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure, Susan. Thank you. Great conversation.